Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. And in-house. Uh, after that, I moved to uh, Australia. That was about 16 years ago. Did my Master's of Law from Melbourne Uni. And... Um, I worked for Clayton Newts and Minta Ellison before I moved to the Victorian Government Solicitor's Office uh, for about um, 11 years. And I started my own practice just a couple of years ago. Um, in terms of this particular topic, I guess I, I am on the Council of the LIV and I chair the Sexual Harassment Task Force there. Uh, I'm also the National Vice President of the Asian Australian Lawyers Association. So we do have a lot of touch points in terms of this topic. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Melina. And Josh, when you're ready. Uh, you might just have to unmute yourself. Ah. There you go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Ho yeah, hopefully you can hear me now. Yeah. Um, I have uh, headed up the employment and industrial law team at Morris Blackburn for far too long before that. Um, worked for a union, worked as a federal court associate, uh, worked as a public servant in Canberra for a time. Um, I have acted for unions and employees for more than two decades in lots of different types of cases and contexts. And more recently, acted for three of the women whose allegations against Dyson Hayden were upheld, and also for a woman who was um, sexually harassed while at AMP. Um, and that issue has recently um, come to light. Um, I'm also involved. Uh, with a disciplinary tribunal as a part-time member of that and sit on the board of the Australia Institute and I try and write a bit and I'm supposed to be writing a book about um, employees' uh, rights to speech and citizenship being um, overtaken by uh, their employment contracts and workplace policies. Um, so it'll deal with issues like... Um, the attempt to sack Ros Ward from La Trobe University years ago who, for controversial Facebook posting or to the sacking of Israel Folau. Um, I also do a bit of public interest litigation, um, act for a range of um, civil society organisations. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Um, so our first question is directed at Kathleen. Can you please outline, Kathleen, from your perspective, the different forms of sexism in the legal profession? Sure. Um, I think sexism in the legal profession, much like in other parts of society, has a number of different forms. So I, I might just speak to a couple of the more common ones. Um, I think one thing that many women in the legal profession experience is a feeling of not being treated in the same way as their male colleagues. That might be because they're simply not kind of seen in the same way. They turn up at an event or they're um, involved in a discussion about something at the law firm where they work and they're not listened to or just not um, kind of treated as an equal participant in, in a discussion. Um, another way that this plays out is the idea that women are often expected to have to, or to need a much higher level of um, qualifications or expertise to kind of be in the ballpark of being considered for a new brief or a job where a man would be considered um, if he has kind of lower levels of qualification. And so that sometimes ties into this notion of risk that 
when people are wanting to engage um, a solicitor or engage a barrister for a particular piece of work that uh, to hire a woman is, is considered as something that's more risky and so she needs to be much more highly qualified to um, be considered for the same work that a, a man with lesser qualifications might be considered for. So that's one thing that's seen a lot. Um, and the other, of course, is sexual harassment, which is uh, a form of sexism that is um, quite common in the legal profession as it is in other sectors of society. Awesome. Thank you very much for that overview. Um, next up, Melina, could you speak from your own experiences, I guess, to the additional hurdles that some women face in the legal profession? Uh, for example, you've uh, written about or spoken about the double glaze ceiling and the bamboo ceiling. We'd be interested to hear about those. Um, I think I'll just start with, because I've worked in two jurisdictions, and i just start with the fact that we must recognize that the legal profession is inherently hierarchical and traditional, and as it is with any profession where this is the case, it will be sexist. Males will not naturally give up their positions of power easily, which they've held for a couple of uh, centuries. And that was for both of the jurisdictions where I have practiced, uh, and even the survey of, um, by the International Bar Association 2019 found that one in three female respondents and one in 14 male respondents had experienced sexual harassment. So that's sexism is rampant everywhere. Um, so as, as I mentioned, I started my career in India and uh, uh, and some of my experiences were that I actually had to get my father, a senior lawyer to sit on some of my meetings so that the clients had more confidence. Uh, there was another example of an advocate general of a state who told me that it would be nice, um, if I was nice to him, he would get my father on the state panel. And also I was told by some senior male and female colleagues uh, um, I was told off by them for not wearing uh, Indian uh, traditional wear to court. Uh, and judges over there have publicly in courtrooms told uh, female lawyers off for not being appropriate, appropriately dressed up if they were not in Indian traditional clothing. And I think that's extremely sexist. Um, but I guess this was at a time when there was no female, there were no female judges um, in the judiciary, uh, hardly any, um, no silks and hardly any partners in firms. Um, there are a few now, and um, and this is ironical because I entered the profession because my father and grandfather always told me that this is a great profession for women, as it gives them confidence, self-belief, independence, and flexibility. My grandfather was a feminist judge, um, and I entered the profession believing I will not be discriminated against. Um, I guess Kathleen's already spoken about some of the sexism in the profession here, and um, and it, I guess it becomes more pronounced for women of color or migrant women because of the double glazed glass ceiling, as I call it. I think all of you are familiar with the term glass ceiling, but uh, for women of color, the um, the hurdles are manifold. So we call it the double glazed glass ceiling. Um, for that reason that prevents them from progressing in their careers. The same hurdles create an additional layer for women of color when it comes to uh, sexism or sexual harassment. A woman of color is um, also likely to face bullying, racism, and sexual harassment at the same time. And it's very difficult for the woman to distinguish between these different kinds of behaviors and respond adequately. Uh, and the support structures for women of color, uh, especially that are culturally appropriate, are also very few. So these are some of the, I guess, the additional hurdles that women of color face. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, in regards, I guess, generally to sexism in the profession, um, Josh, we would like to ask you, uh, how is that reflected in other professions? Um, so kind of similar professions or slightly different professions um, from the, pers pers the perspective of an employment lawyer? Um, look, as has already been noted, the law is deeply hierarchical. 
um, and at the top of the hierarchy are um, senior men and um, at the bottom of the hierarchy tend to be young, younger women. Um, in that sort of environment, uh, you're going to find more cases of sexual harassment. The law is not unique in that sense. I think medicine is another industry where there's a similar um, profile. Um, in other parts of the private sector, there can be um, exactly that sort of profile in the media, for example. Um, so it's not unique, but where you have a deeply hierarchical structure with men at the top of the structure, often in their 50s and 60s, um, women in their 20s and 30s at the lower tiers of that structure, that's more likely to result in cases of sexual harassment in my experience. Um, you don't see many cases of sexual harassment, for example, emanating from childcare, from the childcare industry. So uh, where there isn't that same gendered um, composition. So um, I'm not an expert on the you know, structures in across all different sectors, but that's my experience in, in representing employees who've been sexually harassed. Awesome, thanks. Um, I guess, it, was there anything that anyone wanted to add on that general kind of different forms of sexism in um, the legal profession? Something that was um, just struck me as sort of interesting is um, the way in which how Josh talked about the senior men and um, younger women and how that would then, I guess, be compounded, Melina, by what you were speaking about. Um, and maybe this is directed at you, Melina, the uh, informal and social aspects of practicing law, which I guess tie into the historic hierarchical nature of the legal profession. Uh, could you speak a little bit on that and who the social aspects of the legal profession exclude? Um, I suppose, um, I mean, I've already touched upon and everyone's touched upon the hierarchy of the legal profession and what, uh, I mean, the structures that creates and the impacts it has on, on women, particularly because of the way it has been structured for years. Uh, I, I suppose I'm, I'd probably um, be talking more as a woman of color as well uh, here. And it becomes, as I said, more pronounced for me for there's additional hurdles, which are cultural as well, such as, you know, um, women of, you know, migrant backgrounds generally give more deference to authority and they're more used to traditional structures generally in every aspect of life. And, but also, um, there's also greater consequences for them speaking out. So those are some of the other socio, you know, cultural factors that, in, you know, impact on how uh, the structures kind of, um, uh, I, I suppose, impact them further than what it does other people. So, yeah, I guess um, this is just my, I just want to add, yeah, that's all I want to add on that. Yeah. I would add just one other um, observation about the law is that, um, one of the other dimensions uh, to this problem is the gender pay gap. So obviously with seniority, if you've got a, a hierarchy with more senior positions in, enjoyed by men than women, um, you'll find a gender pay gap. And that's one of, the, one of the challenges for not just law firms, but uh, everybody across the board is to reduce the gender pay gap.
suppose to add to that, there's also um, the fact that, I mean, the, a female is generally the childbearing, um, yep. you know, she has to, she's the childbearing member of the family and has primary responsibility for looking after a child. And what that does is if she moves out of the career uh, uh, to do that, it, this, her, um, it limits her uh, progress in, in, in bigger firms or in any kind of, you know, the, in the legal profession generally. And that is another reason why uh, you see that um, you won't see many women who are, you know, made partners or are, uh, or they're not considered for promotion because of that very reason. Yeah, and I might just jump in there and um, add to what Josh and Melina have both said that um, when it comes to women having often greater family responsibilities and taking time out to have kids and wanting to work part time that the structure of the legal profession often means that you suffer a career hit for that, or that um, that you might work in a workplace where working part-time is just not really seen as the done thing or if it is you know you have to structure your part-time work around what the male partner thinks works rather than what works for your family so those kinds of things I think are another form of sexism um, because women and men often experience the uh, stage of life of having children and how all that works in with work quite differently um, and I think just going back to your point Annie about social um, structures one of the things uh, that I've noticed over time is still quite important in the, in the legal profession are those social networks. And we're all familiar with the concept of the old boys club uh, at a place like the bar, that is still a very strong thing that women have to contend with. And when there are still all male clubs that men from the bar might attend and women are excluded from attending those and you don't get invited to the same lunches because you're actually not even allowed in the door. And a lot of the networking happens in those places. If you add on to that, the fact that often women can't go to a Thursday or Friday night's drink event because they're home looking after their kids, it starts to become a real problem as you progress through the stages of your career. Can and I, I think it gets, oh, sorry. sorry. No, go no, Melina. <laughs> it's getting to be an interesting discussion. Um, because that is, uh, that again becomes a, 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 a worse problem for women of colour because a lot of them don't drink. So they don't enjoy going to Friday night drinks. Yeah. Secondly, if, if you've grown up in another country, you don't necessarily know what know about foodie or group, or you went to the same schools or you watch the same TV programs and you feel excluded. There's always this boys clubs that kind of exclude you. They don't want to know you. And they go to steak lunches, long lunches that you're not invited to. So that's also part of the culture. It's really kind of um, is, is a big hurdle for women of color, especially. Uh, to be able to kind of integrate well into a workplace. Um, I was going to add, um, now's probably a good time to mention um, that Margaret Thornton, Professor Margaret Thornton has recently published, uh, I think a highly relevant article to this whole issue and discussion in, um, I think it's the UNSW Law Journal it's called Who Cares? Question mark, the Conundrum for Gender Equality in Legal Practice. And um, I was particularly interested in it because after the Dyson Hayden um, brouhaha died down, I was asked to, to write an article um, for a newspaper about how to try and address and reduce um, sexual harassment in the workplace. And I argued that um, the days of changing policies, company policies, or um, those sorts of issues were over. Um, 
and there needs to be a much uh, broader change and that was to compel men to take paternity leave and um, and I referred to what goes on in Nordic countries where there's a, there's schemes that um, give men as well as women generous uh, paternity leave entitlements and they've either got to use it or they lose it and um, in those countries there's more favourable uh, outcomes in terms of various equality measures. Um, Margaret Thornton's done a far more detailed forensic analysis than I did in my op-ed and um, she's reached um, exactly that conclusion that the key issue to uh, reducing inequality in the law, gender inequality in the law, is to ensure there's an equitable distribution of childcare. Um, and with her formidable in intellect, she's set that out. It's a fantastic um, article, and I think it's absolutely spot on. While, while there's such an uneven distribution of childcare responsibility, while women are the ones who um, access flexible work, which still has a, a stigma attached to it in some law firms so that men won't do it, uh, while law firms um, reward those who are completely dedicated to them so that they work 18 hours a day um, without looking after the kids and get up, get up and leave home before the kids are awake and get home after the kids are asleep, then we can change all the policies and the laws about sexual harassment um, we like, but we'll still have uh, major problems, both in terms of equality and that will manifest itself in sexual harassment cases. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting discussion, that policy change versus cultural change and like which comes first, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Um, and something I guess that's maybe slightly relevant to what you were just talking about, um, but also relevant more, I guess, to generally the structures that um, continue to uphold sexism in the profession today. I'm wondering whether, Kathleen, you could speak a little bit about the comparison between well, I guess your experience with the bar and how that compares to law firms in terms of those structures and um, how they continue to enable sexism. Sure. Um, I've worked in government as well as in a private law firm before mm -hmm. going to the bar. I think it's hard to generalise around private law firms and government because I think in particular in the case of law firms, they can be really different in terms of culture. There are some mm -hmm. law firms that have a really great culture and are much more um, open to different kind of family arrangements and working arrangements and other firms that, that aren't. So I think it's hard to uh, make a broad sweeping statement about those things. But the bar, again, you know, there are differences across the country. Um, I came to the bar in Victoria because I felt that it was a great place for women to practice and I, I still do believe that. Um, and it's been a great place for me. And there are a lot of amazing women at the Victorian bar and it's a very supportive environment. But looking at the bars kind of generally, um, as Josh has already said, you, you do have the same kind of structure, um, very top heavy in terms of senior men predominantly. Um, a lot of the women coming through, um, I think our readers course at the moment in Victoria is often 50% women or over 50% women. So you've got a much more even balance coming through at the bottom end but you're working in teams where you have a senior man generally um, and then a junior woman. And so you've got that same difficult power dynamic. Um, and 
added to that, as I've already said, uh, I think in the bars, much more steeped in this notion of the old, the old boys networks, the men who've often gone to the same schools, they're often um, all boys schools, and they've gone through an entire lifetime of almost always surrounding themselves, you know, with other men, and that's who they feel comfortable and familiar with. And I think you often feel as a very junior barrister woman working with a more senior man that when he is um, given a brief with you, because often they, they it's chosen by the solicitor, they look at you like, oh, what am I meant to do with this person? Uh, who is this thing that's come into my office? I don't deal with women like this. I have a wife at home and I um, maybe have a daughter, but I don't ever have to deal with a woman in this kind of professional way as a uh, as an intellect. And and you can often feel that as a junior barrister that you're then it's just not kind of getting you in some way. So that's just a hurdle you need to overcome. And I think the bar is, you know, changing that over time as, as the numbers of women coming through are, are much greater. But I think the bar just because of its um, history and its traditions being a little more kind of structured and solid, it's probably harder to shift. Uh, whereas in law firms, depending on the firm that you're in, I think that there is a little more control over the culture. But that's just my perspective. Josh and Melina probably have more experience on on that side of the fence, I guess. Was there anything either of you wanted to add to that? I suppose I've, um, I mean, I guess because I'm working um, on the sexual harassment, I mean, I, I chair the sexual, sexual harassment task force at LIV, I guess that this, this comes up a lot in our discussion in terms of the cultural um, differences between big firms and small firms um, and generally how they're structured as well. I suppose the big, uh, some of the big firms do have, I mean, all of them have HR, um, you know, personnel working there, or they have an HR department and they have policies in place, whereas the smaller firms don't have those, uh, you know, have the luxury of having those kind of structures. And that creates a bit of a hurdle in terms of reporting for a lot of women. And it's, it's difficult and it perpetuates that um, sexism and also um, makes it difficult for women to report. So um, I suppose those that is, is something that we're working on at the LIV as well, whether we can provide a code of um, you know, conduct for these smaller firms and sole practitioners that can be useful um, in sort of bringing about a cultural change there as well. And, and as uh, was already mentioned by Kathleen, there's the boys culture uh, in these big firms as well, where male, you know, senior male professionals protect others. And so the, any disciplinary body is unlikely to take any action against the perpetrator. And that is always going to create further hurdles. So, so I guess, um, I mean, my experience has been, I've worked at two top tier firms. I, there was no, um, there, there was no DNI kind of committees at that time, that's years ago. Um, there wasn't many, any policies at the, and I'm talking 16 years ago. Now everyone has policies, but even within the government, um, with the Victorian government solicitor where I was, our DNI committee was um, just um, started. We just started that 2017 uh, and I left in 2018. So just a year before, I, and I was on, on the inaugural committee and worked on a lot of the terms of reference and things. So if, if you don't have even DNI in place, you don't talk about diversity and don't talk about inclusion, it's really going to have an impact on how you kind of manage those um, issues within the workplace. So I would just add, I'm a skeptic about, um, I'm pretty jaundiced about Policy, policies in organisations and procedures being updated and so on because um, in some of the most appalling cases I've been involved with, the company policy was immaculate. So, um, and we've had uh, laws about discrimination and sexual harassment for over 40 years. I think 
those laws could be improved um, significantly, but I still think um, there's a huge problem we've got. And if there are two, two um, approaches that I favour that would, um, I think, have a, a radical and positive outcome, um, they would be one, to challenge all law firms, big and small, to uh, eliminate the gender pay gap. And that, that's a process that can be a bit tricky and time consuming, can be done um, over a period of time within several years. And secondly, to compel men to take uh, paternity leave, to cajole, compel, encourage uh, men to take paternity leave, significant paternity leave. And I think those, those two um, steps would um, have an enormous uh, positive outcome. And I'm far less convinced that uh, changes in policy and procedure um, would achieve anything like that outcome. Um, ultimately, we've got to address uh, the structure of society and the structure of work and they're interlinked because the distribution of care is so um, lopsided um, and that impacts what goes on inside the workplace. So it's the change that needs to happen is not just confined to the legal profession or to workplaces, it's a broader societal and economic change that's needed. And I, I'm sorry, go on, go no, on, no, Melina. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I read a quote once that I thought summed that point up, Josh, which was, um, these are conversations that need to happen around the kitchen table, not at the boardroom table. Yeah. And I, I thought that was just such a great way of, of, of making that point, as Josh said, yeah. that these are broader issues and it's about the way that we structure our lives and our families and, and how we allocate responsibility within our relationships. And um, that is going to have a big kind of cultural impact so when people are looking at well what's wrong with the profession what's wrong with the legal profession what's wrong with the bar let's look at our policies it's really approaching the problem from the wrong end yeah and that that's um what you've just said is um is something i feel very passionately because when people say this is a question of the boardroom um i want to scream because uh we're talking about as melina said earlier power we're talking about power. No one gives up power willingly. You have to actually fight for it. You have to fight to, to improve equality. You have to fight to um, introduce changes into workplaces where employees get greater rights. The history, if someone's written a history of progressive change, change achieved in corporate boardrooms, I've yet to, I've yet to see it. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. As Melina said, you've got to fight for it. So I don't even, you've got to fight around the kitchen table, but it's also a big political fight um, that has to, to be waged at various levels. I mean, Me Too, um, I think, was an expression of that sort of collective rage and, and um, was part of that fight and that needs to continue. Yeah, I think I agree with both of you. It's about the cultural change and it's not going to come just around with policies. We spoke about policies because a focus sometimes is on that, especially with the work that we do at LIV and things. But yeah. we are looking at a lot more holistic approach to this and 
we also talking about compulsory CPDs again. That's if we if if you force someone to do that, they're not going to necessarily change their behaviors. Uh, we're talking about bystander intervention training, which is important as well at times uh, to equip. Uh, people Melina, can I challenge? Can, can I challenge you on that? Bystander, <laughs> bystander training, right? That's what my mum and dad taught me when I was four. Because well, when I was little, they said, if you see someone bullied, you intervene. And you're probably doing that now. <laughs> and, 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 and that had a big impact on me because I've always hated bullying <laughs> since I was a kid. However, since when do we need as adults to be taught what's right and what's wrong and when we should say something and when we shouldn't? That, that drives me crazy as well. It, I have to, it, I have it, to it, confess. It, it, it's interesting, though, that a lot of men maybe they pretend that they don't know that their actions were sexually was sexual harassment. So that's training in itself. And women don't understand what they're going through is actually sexual harassment. So that's training as well. So that, I'm not saying that's bystander to intervention training, but training in education maybe awareness is is the right word as well. But mm -hmm. we're also talking about confidential peer support groups or connecting young practitioners with mentors, starting it early enough in universities. Like this is a really interesting conversation happening at university level because the younger they are, younger the women are, the more likely to, fa to face that because of that power imbalance and the and the fact that they, it's gonna be a superior subordinate relationship. And so I guess there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not about policy change. There's a lot of cultural change that needs to happen as well. Yeah. I thought I might speak about an experience I had. Sorry, Annie, if this is taking us out of sequence, but oh, cultural change, I think, of course, is much harder than changing a policy, um, which is why it's often not focused on. And it, and it is a challenge. Um, a couple of years ago, I was involved in uh, a couple of groups that President Maxwell of the Court of Appeals set up where he said, I think that men need to be hearing from women about what it's like in the profession and they need to sit around a table and actually have junior women say, this is what I experienced. And so he got together a few groups of junior women to sit down with very senior men, silks, um, in a confidential environment. And then we did um, junior women with junior men. And it was an opportunity for women to go around the table in, in quite a supported environment and say, this is what life is like for me not just about sexual harassment, um, although that was spoken about, but other things. And it was really great process because a lot of these men kind of knew us and worked with us and respected us, but had never really understood what it's like to be a woman in the environment that they feel comfortable in. And when they heard the stories, you know, many of them contacted uh, the women afterwards and said, it has completely changed my view. I feel like another half of the experience at the bar has been opened out for me and I'd never understood it before. And those kinds of processes that I think can be actually quite powerful when you can hear of people's experience um, and be able to ask them questions and really gain an understanding rather than you know, having to attend a CPD and being told what sexism is, all that kind of thing. So there are kind of lots of elements to it and lots of different strands, but that was just something that I found was actually very um, positive and quite useful um, in, in looking at cultural change. We actually discussed at one of our meetings with the Se Sexual Harassment Task Force to have a theatre workshop uh, where people would enact out scenes and um, I've sort of worked on it in a family violence situation with another not-for-profit that I'm on the board of and where you can actually, the audience can actually stop the the, the um, theatre, uh, you know, performance at any time and come up with their solutions to, to how it's going to operate. And you also put men in let men enact out women's scenes. I don't know how effective it is, but it seems to have some kind of a, uh, it, it puts you, you're talking about putting yourself in the same shoe, putting the, yourself in shoes. 
you know, of a woman who has been sexually harassed on how, you know, men react to those situations. Yeah, I think that's really, um, I love that idea, the acting out scenes idea. Um, but in general, I think that discussion, uh, the comparison between cultural change and um, policy change is very interesting. It sort of seems like we just need both. Um, but I guess on that, I'm just interested sort of as a quick question. Um, do any of you have a strong stance on the impact of and value of quotas and affirmative action sort of policies? Uh, well, I, I might go first. Um, so it, it's an interesting topic to ask barristers about because we do have um, a lot of equitable briefing um, programs and that kind of thing that have come into effect in the last couple of years. I think they've been very effective. I think that they have made a lot of law firms actually stand back and think, oh, actually, we've never looked at our numbers before, but we never brief women. Um, or we don't brief them very often. Or when we do, it's for lower value briefs. And those firms have actually... Uh, many of those firms started to do a deeper analysis of why and, and, and some of the firms realised, well, because we only ever ask male silks for recommendations, that's how we get our junior barristers and the male silks only recommend junior men. So those firms then wrote to all the senior men and said, we, only, we want you to start thinking about the women at the bar and we want some recommendations of women. And the senior men said, well, we don't know any women because like they surround us, but we never work with any of them. So they then started asking their colleagues, well, who are the good women at the bar and, and why haven't I worked with any? And it got a whole conversation going. So we've seen some, I think, really interesting impacts um, coming out of that. Uh, on the flip side, I think some women feel, and I have sympathy with this view that you do occasionally get a call from a firm saying, hi, I'd really love to brief you in this matter um, because we need a woman on the team. And you think, for God's sake, you know, I've got a pretty damn good CV. Like, is that the only reason you're calling me? Um, but it's a kind of ham-fisted approach. However, what I always say to women when they raise that issue with me is it's better to be getting the brief than not getting it at all. And I think five years ago, you just would never have got the brief in the first place. So I think um, they're not quotas as such, but they're targets, you know, we call them. So um, the law firms, I think, have responded really well to those and it, it creates a consciousness. So I actually think that they're great. Hopefully, uh, not too far in the future, we won't need them anymore. But I think at the moment they are needed and they do um, have value. And I, I can add to that. I completely agree with what you're saying, Kathleen. Um, that's, um, I, I think it's more about targets than it is about quotas because you don't want to have that conversation lost in, um, you know, about talking about merit and meritocracy and things like that. So you want it to be on your merit, of course, but you have to also realize that not everyone starts on the same, uh, at the same level on the same plane. So, so especially for, I'll talk from my perspective of a woman of color, I, I have, I didn't start at the same level as other women of maybe Anglo-Saxon background or men for that of Anglo-Saxon background. So I need that extra push to get to where I am. And if someone's offering me because they say that it's for diversity, I'll take it because then I can prove myself. At least I'm, I, I'm, I'm given the opportunity. I will not, you know, I don't, I, I, at least there's a reason that opportunity is given to me. And I, maybe I'm able to prove to others that there are women like me who can make that difference. So I think it's really important for um, that there are some quotas. And we've seen with the government as well with their quotas on women on boards that has had a cascading effect on private sector as well. So you've got to, um, I think it's important that we do aspire to do certain things. Say, for example, in, in the UK for certain appointments, they actually have to interview a person, they call it BAME, I think it's uh, black uh, and uh, 
people of color. They, they, I can't, I don't remember the full um, uh, form of that, but it's basically people of color. So they have to interview someone um, of that background before they make a decision. So at least if, even if they end up, you know, hiring someone who's white, it doesn't really matter because they've actually gone through the process and maybe have identified someone through that process as well. So that those kind of initiatives, I think, are really important. Awesome. Thanks for that. Sorry, Jeff, did you want to add something? No, that's fine. I, I support quotas. I think if, you've got, if you're going to um, address inequality, then you have to provide proper support and that's part of mm -hmm. um, doing so. Yeah, and I think there's a very important um, aspect to this as well is, is that if you have only limited spaces for women, the other women will want to protect those spaces for themselves. They will not let other women come on either um, because they they feel that they, they're threatened by their, their, their if, if someone else comes on, they will be pushed out. So if you have enough for everyone, at least the other women also will not feel threatened. And I've seen that kind of behavior sometimes of women are not supportive of other women because they're too insecure about their own position. So that will also help in kind of, alleviating their, their uh, fears. Yeah. And I, I thought I might also add that when people um, criticize quotas from the kind of meritocracy perspective, it ignores the fact that often the briefs that are given to men aren't given on the basis of merit and they're given because I knew that guy from the footy club or, you know, my son goes to the golf club with his son and that kind of thing. So I think that once you recognize why they're put in place, um, it, it does undercut that criticism. And, and I think that's quite significant. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. Um, we'll move the conversation along a little bit uh, because I would like to touch uh, specifically a little bit more on sexual harassment. Um, and Josh, I'd like to ask you, could you share with us, I guess, your response to hearing the allegations against Hayden, um, including, I guess, whether you found them surprising or unexpected um, and just speak a little bit about representing those women? Sure. I mean, um, I'm trying to think back to when I first was contacted. I think I was surprised um, because the you just don't expect that to be going on at the highest court in the land. I'd never heard of you know anything like that happening. Um, in some ways, you shouldn't be surprised because in terms of hierarchy, that that's the absolute pinnacle in the legal profession, the high court. Um, judge in his 60s, late 60s, dealing with employing women who've just come straight out of uni when they're 21, 22, the, the best and brightest. So um, in that sense, there's your, um, there's your profile for uh, um, something terrible to happen. But I was, I was shocked that um, a judge of the High Court would be engaged in sexual harassment and treating um, his associates in that way. Um, one of the first, uh, I suppose, things that stands out for me about um, getting approached was the terror, the, the fear of the judge. Um, and I, I was getting appraised about whether I was up to going into to, um, adversarial litigation against him because the view was he had links and mates and networks everywhere. Um, and I, in the end, said, uh, I'm actually from a Labor law firm. He's very conservative. <laughs> You've got nothing to worry about. Um, 
I don't, he would not be my greatest fan. Um, and, you know, he's not a great fan of trade unions that, that I act for. So you don't need to worry. I have no difficulty in um, pursuing a case against him. Um, and then, then the, the issue was really dealing with um, people who were very, very badly affected um, so many years later and getting their trust and working with them over several years before everyone learned what the outcome was because it was a very slow uh, process that was under the radar. Um, and it started with one woman, then it became two, and then we started out for three women. Um, once the investigation was commissioned by the High Court, um, we were aware the investigator was going to seek, um, seek out other people either to provide statements, to um, corroborate or not corroborate. Um, but ultimately, when the report came out, we realised there were six women. Um, three, others, three others had come forward. I still don't know who they are. Um, and so, yes, that's, that's a bit of an insight into the process. One of the, the big um, legal issues that that case, uh, I think, throws up is um, how long it is before some women at least feel that they can come forward. Um, women who are sexually harassed often experience enormous shame and guilt and fear. And um, it, this occurs, I think, in also sexual assault cases and sex crime cases that there can be a very long time before someone actually decides they want to pursue some form of legal action. And one of the problems we've got is under the current laws, federal laws at least, um, the, the tribunal that uh, entertains these cases at first instance has a discretion not to deal with any case um, that's older than six months. So I think that that's something that needs to go because people don't feel comfortable for, to come forward sometimes for years. Um, and you can understand why when, when these women were just starting out their careers in the law, um, to have this experience, nothing to be done about it, to, to become aware that others on, in the court knew about it, other people in the legal community knew about it, but no one had done anything about it, was deeply damaging for them and uh, took them 10 years to come forward. Yeah. Thanks for that, Josh. Um, it's really interesting. I would love to hear, Kathleen, from you. Uh, you've written about the, I think, culture of secrecy product or the culture of silence. I'd love to hear just briefly, kind of if you can speak on your thoughts about that. Sure. Um, I was at the High Court um, at the time that one of the complainants was there and so felt very strongly about this when it came to light in the media. And I think I speak for many women who, um, I know from that era, it was, I can't kind of say enough how, how profoundly disturbing it, it was, um, particularly because of who Dyson Hayden was and what he represented in the profession. And I think that it has been 
really quite damaging um, for the profession, both in the way that we look at judges and the way that we think about judges uh, and and the High Court. And and that's something which, you know, is it's terrible that, 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 that that's happened. Um, I think that what I wrote about in, in the funeral review and what I think I care very deeply about this is that this notion of um, the culture of silence or the culture of secrecy in the profession enables this behaviour to continue because as long as we don't talk about it and as long as people um, know about it, then you really are um, accepting it in a way and tolerating it. And that allows the behaviour obviously to go on and to um, impact more and more people. But I think often what happens over time is the behaviour gets worse because the perpetrator thinks, well, I've been doing this for five years and people seem to accept it at some level and now I'm just going to keep doing it. And of course, the power dynamics become more extreme because you have uh, maybe a silk who's working with a junior who might be 20 years younger, but suddenly you're dealing with a judge who, as Josh said, is 65 or 70 dealing with a 20-year-old. And so that's, you know, very problematic um, situations that, that, that women are put in. And I think as long as the profession feels that we shouldn't talk about these things, that it's improper to talk about these things, that we it would be wrong to ever talk about what goes on in court or in chambers or to reveal something that's happened between you and a silk and that it would bring shame on the profession, those kinds of things, I, I think that mentality needs to be kind of broken down and, and broken down isn't even the right word. Um, because it, it really does mean that the behaviour can continue on and it means that as a society we're accepting it, which of course we shouldn't be. So I do feel really strongly about that uh, as something that you know all of us need to address. Um, just to kind of say one more thing about that, one thing I emphasised in the Fin Review article is that it shouldn't be young women who, who have to be the ones to always put their hand up and speak out about this stuff, that it is senior men in the profession and senior people in the profession who need to take responsibility for this culture and these actions. And that's um, ter terribly important. We had, I think about a week ago at the Victorian Bar, Ken Hain gave a CPD about sexual har harassment. And one of the reasons he, he did that is to, to demonstrate that point that this is a, a broader issue that everyone, men, women, senior people and junior people in the profession need to show that they care about and have a commitment to change. And so I think that not just leaving it up to women to have to put their hand up when it happens or speak about it and 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 have you know meetings and and talk about it amongst themselves but actually have the leaders of the profession say enough's enough uh, really matters and and i think that's where real change will come kathleen when yep. you when you're on the court and you said um something happened then was it discussed was were people talking about it amongst amongst your cohort um so, so I was there when Rachel was there, Josh, mm -hmm. um, and I. There were. I can certainly say that I have no idea about. Um, can't speak for the judges, and I've publicly said what I think the judges, particularly Murray Gleeson and Justice McHugh, need to say about what they knew. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do know that associates um, at the time new and of course yeah that's yeah. what I was, I was really referring to the associates and maybe the other staff there was that was my impression that this was um uh, understood by lots of associates and perhaps a few others i can't say it was understood by a lot of associates um i can certainly say i know of several people um who were aware of it but of course um as you yourself has pointed out the power dynamics between yeah. the associates and the judges is um 
I'm not criticizing. I'm not no, absolutely not. I'm um, curious whether you you had. I, I'm definitely not criticizing the associates. No, I, no. I think your article um, was fantastic because my views about McHugh and Gleason's uh, silence to this day are not are not um, printable in um, family fair. So I I think uh, their their silence is appalling um so um, yeah i and and that is exactly why i wrote the article because yeah. seeing you, that the, seeing that the chief justice who was there at the time uh quote had nothing to say about it yeah. um was really distressing and yeah. I, I believe needed to be called out and, that, and that's why i wrote the article but yeah certainly josh um i'm not aware that any other judges um and i think many of them have publicly said you know that they that they knew nothing yeah yeah um, I, I don't i suspect the judge a lot of the other judges didn't know but um certainly the associates who were in an impossible position mm. talked about it and tried to protect one another and that, can, can, right. I, can i can i jump in um and, and talk about this culture of silence i think a big reason why I'm not, it may, may not be the big reason, but one of the reasons why people are able to speak out and, and, and there was action taken this time around was because the person heading the chief, the high court is a, is a female. Maybe that is the reason there is more women in power in, in, the, in the judiciary, in um, our heading membership bodies or as regulators. And I think that is one of the single biggest reason why the allegations against um, Dyson Hayden got the strong response that it got and including the inquiry and including what's happening now in, in the Supreme Court in Victoria. That's got a lot to do with the leadership. And if there are more women in places of power there, you maybe other women will get the confidence that they will be heard and that there's some action will be taken. That boys club will be probably dismantled, that culture of boys club. Yeah. Perhaps that is one of the reasons. I think that was a, a, a very important dimension to the Hayden matter. Uh, Kathleen did something that, um, so I think, I think we've still got a huge way to go in terms of speaking out, even for barristers like Kathleen. Kathleen, Broke the rules because you don't um, you don't cr publicly criticise. Um, no, you don't. People, you don't. <laughs> people higher up in the hierarchy at the bar. There's this patronage system with senior counsel and junior counsel, and then um, that leads up to the judges. And we all know judges who engage in bullying. Um, if you're in in practice, that's not an unusual situation. I've seen it. Others have seen it. Um, um, I think Kathleen has been very, very brave. Um, I yeah, would yeah. take you to, to, a, to, a, to a matter in India where the Chief Justice of India, there was allegations against him for sexual harassment. That matter went to the police. It was taken away from the police. All yeah. action investigation was stopped. Everything stopped because he was the Chief Justice. He used yeah. every power in his possible to stop those investigations. In fact, allegations were put against the whole family of that female and every other female he had ever harassed, uh, sexually harassed, and it just got, the matter got, you know, put under, you know, uh, buried uh, because he had the power to do that. And, and he, India's, uh, obviously in Australia, there's more accountability. I feel India there isn't that much, but it was shocking, absolutely shocking. And that's why 
people like Kathleen speaking out, I think is really, really a bold, bold move. I couldn't speak out. There were I, I never spoke out, even though my father was in the profession. My grandfather was a very respected judge. I still couldn't speak out about how some of the senior lawyers spoke to me, that especially that advocate general who told me to be, you know, nice to him and give work to my dad. And that was just... Yeah, I, I still, I'm, I'm now speaking about it. I'm in a different country. I can speak about it, but I didn't have the chance to speak about it then. Yeah. So I think we've got a long way to go. I mean, we have a different system, but there's still not a proper system to deal with judges who behave badly. There's no, you either um, have informal systems, which are all secret and we don't really know how they work, um, or um, you've got in the federal level, um, the possibility of a motion being carried by both houses of parliament to remove a judge, which is almost um, never used. So I think there's a huge problem there. Yeah, I think that's all um, very true and we could keep talking about it, but I just, um, it's almost 2 p.m. But if you don't mind, I just thought we might ask one audience question. Is that all right with everyone? Um, I'll just make it quick. But uh, we did have some audience questions and we've had such an interesting discussion, but I, I would like to ask this one. Um, this was submitted by Isabella um, and she wanted to ask, in terms of advice for young women, um, how can we combat sexism and deal with it as we enter the legal workforce? And uh, she didn't mention this, but I think it's also interesting if you could comment, Josh, quickly on um, what men entering the profession can do to help curb, se uh, curb sexism. Um, ultimately, curbing sexism is a structural issue and a political issue. So um, as individuals, we can certainly make a contribution, but collectively uh, involving yourself in uh, political activity, in activity to um, reform structural problems is, I think, a, a better approach. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to answer it that way, and uh, rather than say men should be good bystanders because I've got all sorts of issues with that approach. If if you're in a workplace which is deeply hierarchical and where something naughty is going on, and if you stick your head up, it's going to be kicked off. Then um, you're not going to be a good bystander. So I think the answer is uh, a broader political approach, collective approach. Um, to gender inequality, um, and that that's the approach that should be taken. All right. Thanks, Josh. Um, Kathleen or Melina, did you have any sort of advice for young women? Yeah, um, and or I would say this well. for young women and young men entering into the profession, and that is to talk to someone. If something happens to you that uh, makes you feel uncomfortable or that you're concerned about, um, you need to talk to someone and whether it's someone at your own level or someone more senior who you can trust you should be able to find a listening ear and if you can't find someone within your firm uh, find someone else because there will be people that you can talk to and I think you shouldn't feel alone and it will really help to get some advice um, in your particular situation about what to do even if you decide to do nothing it's really important that people can share their experiences and feel comfortable to do that and I think it's only in talking about it that we can really make some change but as I said before the obligation shouldn't be on junior members of the profession or people entering into the profession to make these broad changes it, it has to be something that 
the leaders of the profession are working to and that everyone else is working with them as well. So um, I, I don't want people to feel going into a law firm or, or going into the bar that there's some unrealistic obligation on them to be speaking up every time something happens. But I, I think it's important to know that you will be able to find support. And if not in your own circle, then go outside it until you found it because you, you shouldn't have to go through that kind of thing alone. I think Josh and Kathleen both have made very valid points and I'll just um, say that, um, yes, you, you, the support systems are really, really important. That's what we're hoping to work on at the LIV as well, especially for uh, young junior members of the bar. Uh, bar. And uh, also understanding what um, behaviours constitute sexual harassment, that's both for male and female. Learn to say no as well. There's some systems you can't change, so you can't really, you have to work around them, but there's certain things you can say no to and learn to say that. And report where you can, as Kathleen said, talk, talk about it and report it to whatever, whoever you can possibly, at least bring it to light. Um, you can even call up the VLSB. There's a, a confidential hotline where you can call and report if there's anything that you feel is disturbing you. Um, and you leave that environment if you're required. You just I just don't understand. I just don't feel the need to stay on in a situation that is so negative and is going to have a long-term impact in your, on your mental health or on your employment status as well. So, and it's not going to impact your career long-term. You will, I mean, you, you may not be working in a big firm after that. You may not, enjoy, you may have to leave a place you enjoyed working at, but you eventually are leaving a toxic situation. So, so I think just leave, that is really important. Um, Annie, before we finish, uh, I might just say add something there, and that is, um, it, it's a hard thing to talk about, and and uh, it can bring up a lot of feelings for people. You know, talking about sexism and and sexual harassment in particular. Um, that's not to say that you know there aren't great things about our profession, and I I do want to emphasise that, particularly because you've got a whole lot of people here who are looking at entry into the profession. Um, I, I love being at the bar, I love the job, and there are certainly really you know tricky things about it and challenging things about it and things that I um, would like to change and I'm working on changing but overall it, it's a profession that I love and I think women can build a really amazing wonderful career in, in our profession so I would encourage people um, I don't want to sound overwhelmingly negative about it but I do want to be realistic as well um, but that's another reason why I encourage people to kind of talk and share their experiences because one of the things I find at the bar is I draw a lot of strength from male and female colleagues but particularly my female colleagues who understand what it's like and we talk about it and we workshop different solutions to problems and it just helps to be able to download or debrief. Um, another thing I'll, I'll, I'll throw out there is I have a website called Feminista Journal if anyone's interested where a lot of people um, put writings and, and especially writings about the law and their experiences in the profession you can read you know a whole bunch of stuff on there about um, the Me Too movement or um, being self-employed or a range of issues like that if you're interested and you can also submit something and you can submit anonymously and have it published and that's another way that I think a lot of women I know feel it's quite cathartic to be able to put your experience down in writing and put it out there and um, be able to share in an experience that way so uh, having some kind of community building around this stuff is really important rather than just you know trudging along on your own. Awesome thanks so much for Kath uh, thanks so much Kathleen for that. And I guess we should definitely wrap up there. Um, sorry for going a little bit over time, but thank you very much to our three panelists. That was a really awesome discussion. Um, I really enjoyed it personally, and I hope everyone else has too. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And there's lots of thank yous in the chat because everyone's <laughs> muted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
see you later.